Get your gear ready. This is a Sherpa's Guide to Innovation. Welcome to A Sherpa's Guide to Innovation, a podcast dedicated to guiding you along your innovation expedition. This is Ben Tingey, your host. I'm thrilled to welcome back to our studio, Ann Summers Hogg, Will Behrman, and Jay Gerhardt from Carolina's Healthcare System. Great to see you all again. Good to see you again, too, Ben. Hey, Ben. Good to see you. Glad to be back. Yeah. Terrific. Well, on our previous episode, we put on our disruptive innovation lenses to discuss the disruptions occurring in the healthcare industry. Uh, Today, our theme will be how incumbent organizations can learn to disrupt themselves before they get disrupted. Uh, We'll talk about some examples of organizations who have succeeded and failed in their self-disruption attempts. Um, So everyone start noodling about some examples that you might like to share and Keep them in the back of your minds for a couple of minutes. Um, And we'll also be learning from these examples uh, about how generally incumbent organizations can approach their uh, self-disruption efforts to better identify and respond to the disruptive threats that they're seeing in uh, the market. So um, let's get right down to it and and start talking about some example organizations. Um, So I'll open it up. Actually, Will, why don't we start with you? Um, what are some examples of companies who have successfully disrupted themselves or, or maybe seen disruption and got in front of it? Yeah, I think one of the, the better examples that I can think of is really around uh, Dayton Hudson. So in the late 50s, early 60s, they noticed a trend toward uh, um, discount retailers that were coming into the U.S. And uh, you know, they were a pretty high-end retail store. Um, and uh, had a infrastructure that was uh, geared around bringing in, you know, higher end, higher margin, uh, and, and you know, fairly costly infrastructure to bring in these types of services and goods for people in their department stores. And uh, they, they realized that on that current um, infrastructure and, and that current business model, they couldn't effectively bring in or compete in a retail store um, environment. And so what they did was create a separate division. And that separate division then developed the concepts around uh, retail uh, discount retailers. Um, they had their own set of resources, their own processes, their own metrics of success and priorities. And uh, it was allowed to really grow and develop and flourish on its own. <clears throat> and it had its stops and starts and fits and and, and uh, and successes, but it was really kept as a separate entity within the same governing board and uh, was allowed to really build itself, and, and it did. And it was successfully grew revenue till within a decade it was the same size as the host um, of the, uh, the, the founding part of the company. Um, from Dayton Hudson. And it continued to grow until finally, um, in around 2000, it became the dominant brand for the company, which we all know as Target. And, uh, and part of that company. Yeah, yeah. In fact, they even changed the name of the company then to Target and sold off their remaining department stores. 
And so, but it took about 40 years for this company to be able to completely disrupt itself. Um, but needless to say, I think we can all agree that that was, you know, they did it with great success. Yeah. And, but they were very deliberate about what they did. And they realized that the infrastructure that had made them successful would not make their disruption successful. Mm-hmm. And so they created a separate infrastructure entirely for that new business model. Yeah, well, let's go a little bit deeper into that. So so they they developed this separate infrastructure, this separate business model. So let's tease that, that out a little bit further. What what do organizations have to do to make that successful? Is, is that what's needed to, to completely remove it from the core business? Well, if you go back to Dr. Christensen's original book uh, and the th- theory, um, what he proposed is he separated out as very autonomous, uh, really a completely separate business unit. And the reason you do that is because when you try to disrupt yourself from the core business, it's almost like the core fights back. And the but. It's not because managers are not good and competent, and that's one of the most profound things about the uh, the original theory is that companies get disrupted, successful companies get disrupted, actually because of the level of competence of their leadership, because in their core market, they're making business decisions, and they're incented to do things for the core, and they make those right decisions. Well, if you come in with a completely different business model that Will has described, uh, you, you can't do two things things at once. So you need to separate it out so people can, uh, you know, go along, make the decisions in, in parallel uh, for the new business to succeed because the, the core will, will fight back and attempt to kill it. And that's what you see in a lot of examples. Yeah. And I think that Jay really hit on it. It's not that people aren't good at doing what they're doing. It's not that they aren't competent. It's that they're so competent. They're so good at creating the success they've created before that they are incapable of doing it a completely separate way. So as Will was talking about with Dayton Hudson and Target, they separated it out from the core and they gave it completely different resources, processes, and priorities, completely different metrics of success because you can't measure tomorrow's business model by today's success metrics. Mm -hmm. And that's what successful organizations really do so well. Yeah, so so they get stuck in the sustaining innovations, uh, creating better and better products for their best customers, uh, and because they are so good at that and and their profit margins increase, why do something that is going to disrupt what you're the success that you're having? And so yeah, that makes sense That's why right. they would struggle to to do it to themselves. Also, one of the key we talked about before, too, is when you would do something different, you've got to learn how to do it first, right? And so that's not always um, congruent with return on investment and with uh, you know increasing operating cash flow margin that most successful incumbent companies are dealing with. So you've got to have a place for that learning to flourish and to really um, you know build that new business model because you don't know what it's going to be perfectly when you first start. You're going to have to evolve it. And if you're if that's within a company that's worried about returning on any investment or return on assets, it's not going to succeed. And as Jay was saying, you know, it's almost like the body creates antibodies and uh, and destroys that new organism. Yeah. So, I mean, Dayton Hudson Target. It took forty years. That seems like uh, uh, quite a quite a journey. So it seems like disrupting yourself is is very hard. Uh, and and is it rare? So some people might look at Dayton Hudson and Target and say, I mean, did, was that almost like an 
accidental self-disruption or was it really intentional? Do we have any maybe uh, more current examples about um, companies that have very intentionally disrupted themselves that saw the disruption and were able to uh, get ahead? Before I answer that question, I just want to add one other thing that I thought of when Will was talking about Target and Dayton Hudson, and you just alluded to it, which was it's a long journey. And I think the best way to describe it is actually from the sunscreen song back in the year 2000. Does anybody remember this song? It Baz Luhrmann wrote this um, graduation speech for the class of 2000. And at the end of it, he says, and the race is long, but in the end, it's only with yourself. And that makes me think of companies that are on the journey to disrupt themselves. And it's it's a long journey. And you have to be in it for the long haul and know that you're really racing against yourself. To be successful, you have to be willing to make those trade-offs, to make those changes, to have different metrics of success. And it's, it's not going to be fast. It's not going to be easy. But it's really a race against yourself. Yeah. Terrific. Well, what examples... Well, I think one of the more recent examples that uh, a lot of people are probably familiar with is Netflix. Right? So Netflix has done a really good job of not only disrupting the incumbents at the time, which were those folks that you had to go to a store and be able to buy or rent a, uh, a movie. And again, when we go back to disruption theory, you know, they were able to find uh, really a way to make it easier, right? And uh, that's what they did. In some cases, it was just good enough. So it was somewhat of a low end, but definitely a, a new market disruptor. But they didn't stop there, right? So it wasn't just that they stopped by sending you DVDs by mail. They kept evolving, and they kept really disrupting themselves. And it's really fascinating how they've done it because they did it fairly quickly, but then they moved to streaming. You know, And again, it wasn't the technology that made it a disruption. It was a business model around that new technology. And they've continued to evolve and to really disrupt themselves because now they're not only streaming other people's work, they've got their own um, you know, unique um, production. And so they're creating their own content now and uh, disrupting all of those folks who were content creators. So they've, they've done a good job at not only disrupting the original incumbents, but continuing to evolve and disrupt themselves. And uh, you know, that, I don't know of many other examples of where anybody's done that even to themselves. And even Netflix, uh, as successful as they've done it, and they've done it very rapidly, and, and that's, that is because technology has enabled it. You think about Dayton, Hudson, Target, that's a lot of physical assets. It takes decades to do that. Netflix does it quick. But even though if you really go back and look at the history, it proves that it's still extremely hard to do, and you're likely going to make mistakes along the way. I mean, I think Reed Hastings had to do some type of mea culpa in a video kind of because he had split streaming and video fees, and they, they kind of separated. A lot of customers were unhappy. So then they took the uh, – mail order business and I guess spun it off and called it Quickster mm-hmm. or something like that. And then a month later, they closed it all together. So that that was not all well orchestrated. It was very bumpy. Their stock price went down like 80% at yeah. the time. And they're getting killed by analysts. But they they endured. They they stuck to it. They stuck to getting the customers' jobs done, and look where they are now. They but, kept learning. Yeah, but the key is it's it's not a simple straight line yeah. path. 
not for the faint of heart. Yeah. Yeah, and to the point of it's not a simple straight line path. When you go to disrupt yourself, you have to be really comfortable with the fact that the answer is unclear. Where you're going, you have a vision for where you want to be, but the exact pathway for how to get there is a little rough. What you have to be really crispy and clear about is the assumptions you need to test to prove what will create an effective new business model. So it's okay to be rough and a little unclear on the exact pathway or the exact endpoint, but you always want to be really crispy and really clear on what are the assumptions that must prove true or must prove false to see if I can truly make this disruptive business model effective. Yeah, one of the things that Amazon did really well is whenever they try something new, they would set it up to have immediate feedback. And so, you know, they knew if something was bad, and they may not leave it out there long. It may cause a lot of consternation, but they were able to pivot quickly um, by being able to get good feedback. So they were learning the customer's job to be done and learning what people were willing to spend money on. And uh, I think that was really important. So if you're going to disrupt yourself, you've got to have that feedback mechanism. You've got to understand, again, focus it on what do the customers need and where are the opportunities to disrupt. Again, is it something that's just good enough or is it something that's going after non-consumption and new markets? And, uh, again, I think that's why if you look at the case study, they've had their failures, but they've gotten over them quickly and moved on, whereas some other companies probably haven't because they just stayed entrenched in what they were doing for a long time. Yeah. So let's let's pause just a minute to review some of the concepts we've talked about. So, you know, disrupting yourself is very hard. Yes. Uh, it's it's a long journey. It's not a straight line path. And and those that have successfully done it, those cases might be kind of rare. Um, in order to make it successful, you need to separate this new business model from your core and have entirely different processes set up. Uh, to to be successful in that new environment rather than holding it to the same standards in the core. And mistakes are, are going to happen along the way, uh, but you just keep going. Um, is, that a, is that a fair recap so far of uh, what yeah, we've done? I, yeah. I think you've hit it. Awesome. So one, one thing that Ann Summers said um, that I thought was interesting was that there's an unclear path. You have to invest in learning uh, and that you don't always know what the future might be. And as you better understand consumers, you might uh, get some ideas. You know, I've heard uh, about an industry uh, who's been trying to do that where the future is a little bit unclear. It's the auto industry where they're trying to figure out how to handle ride sharing and all kinds of things. Um, uh, you have thoughts on, on – uh, things that we've heard from from that industry of, of what they're thinking about. Yeah, so I know one company that's doing some interesting work there is Ford, but Jay actually knows a lot more about them than I do. I have a lot of questions about what they're doing, but I'll kick it to Jay to really answer that one. Yeah, I think before talking about Ford, um, you know, I think they came to light by a, a new book that was out this spring uh, by an Insight partner, Scott Anthony, talked about dual transformation. And uh, I think it's really interesting. I think it's an, if you think about it, uh, Clay's original theory is about 20 years ago. So we should be learning some things by now. <laughs> While disruption is very hard and very long, we should at least be learning how to do it. You know, a really successful, well-run company um, should be able to do it. Now, people disagree with that. 
uh, but dual transformation says it doesn't have to be completely autonomous. You need to create a lot of separation. You need to have different resources, uh, processes, and priorities, but you can still share some key capabilities across the business. You know, I think that's that's really interesting, and it's a, it's a real positive view of being able to disrupt yourself. And uh, after studying that, you know, learned a little bit about Ford. I'm not an auto analyst, so an auto analyst would probably come in here and just, you know, trash me and what I'm thinking. But when you read Ford's investor presentation from last fall, it's really interesting because they characterized their vision as basically they, – they actually got really trounced in the market. They announced a new vision. It was about making people's lives better through changing the way the world moves. So it's very high level, but it – it really broadens the aspect of what they do, and it makes it not about cars. So they've actually created a uh, – they, they've actually very specifically said, here's what we're going to do in our core business, the sustaining innovations for our core business. But we're going to start this new emergent path and call it mobility. And their new CEO is actually the head of that, so it's very interesting. They've taken their innovation guy and put him over the company, and it's all about mobility, autonomy, ride sharing. I mean, they're getting into bikes, bike sharing. So they're looking at things very broadly. Now, for all I know, GE, Chrysler, Mercedes all have the the same business plan, but what they've articulated is really interesting, and it does seem to follow that dual transformation path, and it's just a question whether they can do it. Yeah, it'll be interesting to look at this, I don't know, 10 years from now, and see, were they really ahead, just like Dayton Hudson was? They saw that the trends were changing, that millennials don't want cars, that it's not about buying an awesome car, it's about moving me from point A to point B, and that whatever the new Ford is, it's it's going to be the target of of car companies yeah and and what about the they're still going to have the core business and i don't understand all the capabilities they're going to share but they're going to really need real leadership because that core business is going to demand resources it's going to demand analytics and all those things that this new mobility division will require if they have the leadership to make the right calls at the right time It'll work, but that's as we've talked about. That's hard to do. Yeah, it'll be a fun example to watch for certain. Well, we've brought up the term dual transformation. Let's maybe go a little bit deeper into what that is. So, uh, what, what, what's the theory? I, I, I understand it's uh, uh, refinement of some of Clay's thinking, but what uh, what, what are some of those? concepts we can it, it's talk. really it's set up it's fairly simple equation of a plus b equals c and a is really about transforming your core business and and ford is looking at doing that they've articulated what they need to do with small cars and luxury market and emerging markets so they realize they have a lot of work to do in their core but then you've got to create the new growth engine, and that's kind of the new business model, the new disruption. So, again, that's not about selling cars. That's about really creating a platform that uh, could you know, tie into ride-sharing, bike-sharing. They are viewing transportation as a service in the future, and they see a tipping point coming out, you know, about 10 to 15 years from now. So they're going to – they see moving from selling cars to transportation as a service in the future. So that's B. And then C is really what are the capabilities from your existing core business that you can use 
to build the new emerging business. That's the difference from Clay's original theory. Clay just said, you know, either acquire it or keep it completely separate. And this is showing a little bit of a middle path. Yeah, and it also connects back to Clay's original theory and that Scott Anthony says A does A and B does B. So even though you're transforming both at the same time, the core organization A still needs to do what it does best while B is doing the new and different thing that it does best because it's still true that the same resources, processes, and metrics of success can't all blend together. Yeah, and it acknowledges the different value propositions between the existing core and what you're building, what's new. If you're going to have a different value proposition, you're going to need different resources and processes to get that done. So um, I think it is interesting, though, how they uh, he talks about them being shared. And I think that, uh, you know, you look at a lot of leadership uh, and, and management training, and uh, and even with change management, it's become a real big construct within that leadership development lately. I think a lot of it's geared towards some of these concepts, whether intentionally or not, that's where the market's moving. And so how do you work in almost a bifurcated world like that sometimes where, you know, one day or one time you might be working on a project that's got one success metric, and then another time you might be working on another that's got a, a separate success metric and how do you keep those two you know coordinated but yet uh, moving together separately even though they might almost be in uh, at odds with each other yeah definitely a new leadership skill yeah. for a for a new environment um shall we move into healthcare? that's our forte um what are some uh organizations who are learning how to disrupt themselves that we're seeing in healthcare? I think one that comes to mind, again, it's from dual transformation framework is Aetna, uh, the health insurer. They're the third largest health insurer in the country. And watched a video recently of their CEO, Mark Bertolini, and it's shocking to hear a the third largest health insurer talk about not needing insurance in the future. And he is recognizing there, you know, there could be a very different future in healthcare. Um, and you know, really questioning what happens to insurers in that role, and that could happen due to policy or other things. Uh, so he's repositioning at taking them through a dual transformation to make them a healthcare, IT, and analytics provider. So he's starting to think about. He talks about getting provider systems equipped to deal uh, with uh, the coming value environment, which I think is really. Interesting. I love to. Yeah, they've got an interesting partnership uh, with Texas Health Resources and you know, the Dallas Fort Worth market that where they're applying a lot of these things that they're talking about. It'll be interesting to see. It's just getting kind of started, but uh, it'll be a fascinating example to watch. Definitely, and I know Aetna is a great example. They also want seventy five percent of their contract contracts to be value based by twenty twenty. So really aggressively moving towards shifting their business model towards keeping people healthy as opposed to paying for sick care. I think the, whether you call it a negative externality or the impact on insurance as a whole that will result from the disruption in both auto and health and who knows what else is going to be really interesting to watch how they respond to the disruption tangential to them and where they will create the disruptive business models within within their organizations. Yeah, they're going to be one to watch. It's um it's interesting to think about, you know, you think about healthcare as an industry that's uh 
you know, kind of many providers stuck in between fee-for-service and value, and it's kind of hard to know where that tipping point is. And you, you think about it as an industry where it's very hard to disrupt yourself. And it makes me think about it, be interested in your thoughts on this, that healthcare actually has a lot, a lot of examples of integrated healthcare systems. And that's kind of what Clay saw as the answer in the innovator's prescription, the Kaiser Permanentes, the Intermountains. So there's actually a fair amount of systems that have been living in both worlds for a long time. There's also a lot of providers that have tried it and and shed those businesses. So, but you think about it, it's an industry you don't think they're disrupting themselves, but those kinds of organizations are essentially living in a state of disrupting themselves. Yeah, and I think uh, you know, having had experience working in an integrated delivery system that had both uh, a health provider and a, an insurance product, uh, it can. In the past, it was sort of one had to be the predominant business model for the entity. And I think in today's world where it's really becoming disruptive and different is that how do they work when they're truly integrated? And I think your example with Aetna is a good one is, you know, how do you use the the data and the you know, capabilities of one of the organizations to help support the other, be it, you know, predictive analytics to help better support the delivery of care and of health, as Ann Summers was saying, rather than sick care. And uh, I, I think there are a number of examples of folks that are doing that. And it's really interesting to see, though, how, uh, you know, again, where that tipping point is going to be, because I think a lot of them don't know when to fully ex- change their business model. And so we're having to almost disprove Clay um, and his theories in that we've got to disrupt ourselves um, almost on the same road simultaneously. And, you know, again, I'm not quite sure how that's going to work. Uh, I'm not sure that it can work. Yeah, from an perhaps too optimistic perspective, I want to believe that it can. Because if I think about the macroeconomic impact of all of these large organizations not being able to disrupt themselves. The, I mean, if we go back to when car manufacturing moved outside of the United States because it was a lower-cost business model to do it that way, look at the negative impact that that created in Detroit. Just one, yeah. one industry in one city. But if insurance all giant health insurance companies get disrupted all giant integrated delivery networks across the u.s get disrupted and can't disrupt themselves the negative impact of that creative destruction is massive and i know that ben thompson argues that you know that's the better way to do it but it's that's a really really big like and and i think it it does depend on the industry if you think about um Netflix and Blockbuster. And I know, you know, Blockbuster was a major employer, but you think about what they had. They had physical assets of buildings that are easily re-rentable, um, employees that, you know, uh, we weren't necessarily talking about doctors and folks like that that, you know, I'm sure that I don't want to, you know, say that was not difficult for a lot of people, but you could reuse those assets, reuse those people fairly easily. You look at the healthcare system, though, hospitals with EDs, with trauma centers, with transplant centers, these are assets for the community that, you know, you, you don't want to see go away. So 
I'm, I'm of the opinion we've got to disrupt ourselves, or it's not really particularly good for our communities and, and societies. Yeah. But it might vary for creative destru- destruction. It kind of depends on the industry and the assets yeah, involved. I, I think we'll end up figuring it out. I don't want to figure it out. <laughs> I want to go forward with it in a meaningful, proactive way. And uh, that that's what I'm not sure I see in the industry yet. I think at some point, again, if the market changes, the business model changes, we'll figure it out. But I want to go make the change happen and not wait for it to happen to us and figure it out. Right. And that we're seeing some large integrated delivery networks start to do that. We're doing a little bit of that ourselves at Carolina's Healthcare System with developing a value-based model of primary care and really having completely different resources, processes, and metrics of success than we use in our core business. So I'd like to believe that, as Scott Anthony says, we're really working on that dual transformation. We're focused on growth and the sustaining innovations of the core, but we're also thinking about what's B? What's that business model of the future? And what is that disruptive growth engine? Yeah, and we've been able to do that with a, you know, putting it in a separate reporting structure, which I think is key to the theory. Um, but you're still using a lot of the same resources. We're just trying to find those people within the different departments who can say, how can we? And help us explore that rather than just say, well, here's how we've done it in the past. That's great. Terrific. Sounds like there's a lot of exciting things happening in healthcare. Do you want to take a couple minutes to talk about some of the examples of organizations that either didn't see the disruption coming or tried to do it and were unsuccessful in in disrupting themselves? I think there's some value in those lessons. Um, I think there's some common themes among them. And uh, those really are somebody who comes in as a disruptor has typically a – a clearer understanding of what part of the segment, the market segment, is looking for. And uh, as a result of that, they're able to take away a lot of business from those who have a static view of what, or an incomplete view of what the market's looking for. And I think Kodak's a good example of that. You know, Kodak had prided themselves, very rightfully so, on image quality. Um, and that was the definition of photography for a long time, especially you know toward the end of the film days. Um, but yet, with the advent of the digital camera and digital technology, which ironically they invented, um, it opened up completely new markets and new jobs to be done that weren't just around image quality. And so what it did is it really took into um, account a large market um, that wanted photography either as a way of taking lots of pictures for themselves or sharing pictures in that social currency context, but necessarily weren't worried about the highest quality, which was a much larger market opportunity than those who really just wanted to focus in on high-quality images. So I think it's one of those where they could have disrupted themselves, but they didn't know how because it didn't meet their current job to be done that they were focused on. Yeah. And so I think that's important to remember is that the market isn't always just what we're serving, and how do we understand that? Yeah, and I think that Kodak is an excellent example of how real disruption always creates growth. Because real disruption always creates new markets. And companies just need to be risk-seeking enough or willing to go out to the ledge and say, 
I see the new horizon. I'm going to invest in this disruption as opposed to staying back and staying safe. Because when you can take that bet and when you can take that risk, that's where companies will see real growth from embracing the disruption. And Kodak teaches you just seeing it because they did have the first digital camera. They did see this a long time ago, and there were some good intentions capitalizing about it, but they couldn't execute on it yeah. for all the reasons Will said. And I think that's the real lesson. You know, it's for us in healthcare, we see it coming, but can we execute on it? Right. Can we execute, and will we make the bet to see if we can? Yeah. Well, it sounds like incumbent organizations sure have their work cut out for them. Um, so as we uh, learn more about how to uh, go along the, the dual transformation pathway, we'll, we'll see how uh, uh, maybe in a few years we'll have another podcast and we'll get to talk about what went right and, and where we struggled and, and where other disruptions are happening. Well, thank you, uh, Will, Jay, and, and Summers for, uh, for your perspectives today. Uh, join us next time um, as we'll uh, continue some of our discussions around disruption innovation. We might touch on some jobs to be done theory, um, but we're excited to continue. If you have enjoyed the uh, podcast that we're doing, please uh, go to the iTunes podcast library. You can also find us on Google Play. Um, give us a rating. We'd love to get some feedback and and. Uh, uh, um, let us know what, what you think of the podcast. This is Ben Tingey signing off. Thanks so much. See you next time.